I'm awake. I've slept for 10 hours, but I feel as tired as when I laid down. As I move to get up, everything hurts. My head, my body, the aches go deep into my bones. I have no energy, no will to move, to get up, bathe, eat, or much less go to work. But I have to, there's no other choice. I drag myself out of bed almost literally. Look at myself in the bathroom mirror. I look tired, drawn, large dark circles under my eyes, frail, far too old for my years. I drink some water, but it makes my stomach churn. I bathe and go downstairs. Each step is painful, almost excruciating, feeling the pressure of my too thin body on my knees, my ankles. It's like having a flu that never goes away, never gets better. As I try to figure out something that will soothe my queasy stomach, I lay out all of my medicines, vitamins, supplements, and homeopathic treatments. 23 different pills and drops in all. I have no idea if any of them work, if any of them help in any way whatsoever with whatever is wreaking havoc on my body. I've been to internists, endocrinologists, neurologists, and rheumatologists. Heck, I've even tried naturopaths, homeopaths, and any other path that I could find that might be able to tell me what's wrong with me. They all run tests, find nothing, give me a pill or a drop to shut me up and tell me I should feel better. But I don't. Sometimes I'm hopeful, thinking these things will help. But mostly, I'm discouraged, depressed, sometimes apathetic. I don't understand what caused this, even what it is. Some of the doctors have suggested that I see a therapist, but this is not all in my head. They don't understand that what I feel is real. I don't need mental health treatment. I need someone to figure out what's wrong with me and not tell me I'm crazy. I hurt for real, and I'm not making this up. This episode is about unexplained illnesses. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark sides of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. So I just wanted to start out by saying that the piece that I read at the beginning is fictional. I don't have a chronic illness myself, but I base the narrative on what I've heard from several people who have chronic and unexplained illnesses. I can only imagine how frustrating this experience must be. I have, however, experienced physical symptoms that were unexplained by doctors, and I wanted to share that experience briefly. So I had suffered with stomach issues for years. Sometimes the pain was so intense I could barely move. I went to doctors, and they felt around. They ran some tests. They checked for gluten sensitivity. They told me to eat more fiber. They told me to eat less fiber. They said that the pain was because my rib cage was too narrow. They suggested it was muscle spasms and gave me muscle relaxers. Eventually, they told me it was probably heartburn, so I started on more medication for that. And still, I was in pain. 
I did everything they suggested. I cut back on spicy food, which was terrible. So difficult for me. (laughs) I lost weight. I exercised. I ate small meals throughout the day. I slept with my head elevated. I even gave up coffee, which was a real sacrifice and very difficult for David because he had to be around me while I was off caffeine. And guess what? Still, I was in pain. So eventually it had enough. So I did some research on the internet, which is always kind of a mixed bag. And I found this procedure that can be done where they use radio waves to make scar tissue in the esophagus. So it makes it tighter and it prevents acid from coming up. So I, I know that that's pretty extreme, but I was desperate. So I, I found this surgeon in Denver who did the procedure and I went to see him. And he said that they needed to do some additional tests to make sure that I was a good candidate for the procedure. So first I had to go off of all of my heartburn medicine for several days to make sure that it was out of my system. And then I went for a barium test where you have to drink this chalky substance in front of an x-ray machine. Then after that, I went for an endoscopy, which is where they put that camera down your throat to see if there's any damage to your esophagus or your stomach. And then while they were down there with the camera, they implanted this little device in my esophagus, like where my stomach and esophagus met, to measure the amount of acid present over a period of a few days. So after all of that, I went for my follow-up appointment, and I was hopeful that I was going to schedule this procedure. And you know what the doctor told me? Well, David, of course you know, because you were there. I was there. (laughs) He told me I didn't have heartburn, and that there was no damage to my stomach or esophagus, and that I didn't need medicine or surgery. So when I asked him what was causing my stomach pain, he said, I don't know, but all your tests are normal. So I think a lot of people would have been discouraged by this or maybe embarrassed or even offended that the doctor couldn't find anything. But I'll tell you, I was actually relieved because I knew there was nothing physically wrong with me. So a little bit about me, I have always been a very anxious person. And ever since I was a kid, I'd get physical symptoms along with my anxiety. So I've had stomach aches, muscle spasms, tension headaches, even rashes that I'm almost certain were caused by stress. And really, I would guess that most, if not all of us, have had some kind of stress-induced physical symptom at some point in our lives. When I heard the results of all that testing, it really clicked for me. This was a problem with my stomach because I was legitimately in pain, but it was probably also related to something that was going on for me psychologically. For me, my brain and my body are very much connected. I really can't separate the two. So that's a long-winded introduction to move us into what we really want to talk about today. David and I recently watched the Netflix docuseries called Afflicted, which follows seven individuals with chronic and unexplained illnesses. These individuals experience debilitating symptoms, and they have been diagnosed with a myriad of different conditions. One woman describes being allergic to electromagnetic waves. One man has chronic fatigue syndrome, and one woman experiences significant reactions to molds and chemicals. This docuseries was actually fairly controversial because interspersed with the stories of these people were medical and mental health professionals who basically said that they didn't really know what was going on with them, but they suggested that mental health evaluation and treatment might be helpful. Well, some of the individuals from this show and many viewers made statements that they felt the docuseries trivialized these people's experiences and that it painted them as being crazy. So this actually was quite disturbing to me as a mental health provider. Now, David and I are not here to talk about whether or not there are legitimate biological bases for these diseases, 
There likely are. What we do want to talk about is the rejection of the possibility of there being a mental health component to such diseases. I think these kinds of reactions and statements really just serve to further stigmatize mental health and suggest that our psychological health is not as important and not as real as our physical health. Yeah, we're going to agree a lot on this one, I think. I think it's um, this whole series really sort of brought that to the forefront, that just how much uh, stigma there is still surrounding uh, mental illness or mental health and how important mental health is and how it can be expressed in the body. So for me, first off, and just a little heads up, um, Jessica and I didn't really argue a whole lot about this. This is something that we we definitely come at this from different viewpoints, I think, but in a lot of ways we agree. Uh, for me, first off, I personally really want to acknowledge the suffering of the people in the Netflix series Afflicted. Just like Jessica said, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding this series, and I think we need to say something about the idea that no one wants to have their suffering or experience marginalized. Um, there was a movement for a while, I'm not sure if it's still active, uh, that sought to have the series removed from Netflix because many believe that the series was not sensitive to the very real experience of the participants. Now, we could argue whether or not the series was sensitive to their um, situation or not. We could argue that. But the message to me is very clear. There is today a very strong stigma that continues to surround issues of mental health. These are quite different from issues of physical health. And as Jessica brought up, this is very unfortunate. If we cannot discuss potential issues of mental health without the automatic assumption that someone is quote-unquote crazy then we limit our wellness to just one aspect of our humanity. So I'll say it again. In every example in the series Afflicted, I believed the person. I believed that they were having an experience that was quite unlike what most of us experience in our own body. There is no doubt in my mind that what they were experiencing was, is very real. I've said it before, perception is reality. The mistake I think that is often made in cases like these, however, is that not enough is done to validate the experience of the person before exploring the mind-body connection. Instead, the idea of a mind-body correlation as it relates to unexplained illnesses then comes across as if to say, well, it's all in your head, which may be equal to you're making it up or simply being told you're crazy. Insinuations like these are what we are really, really, really trying to avoid. People with unexplained illnesses are not making up their symptoms, in my opinion. There may be some people who are invested in the hypochondriac or victim mentality and are portraying themselves as sick for attention or whatever. So we have to acknowledge that there are people who do that. But I don't feel that this was the case with anyone from the Afflicted series. So I guess I really wanted to make that point. Today's topic is not about people who deliberately fake illness or illnesses due to some kind of psychological disorder. That's a totally different episode, such as the case of Gypsy Rose, which we'll get into next week. Rather, today we really wanted to explore the relationship the mind-body has as it relates to very real and unexplained illnesses. The people in Afflicted, like millions of others, are having a very real and serious experience. Our job here today is to ask the question, how does this affect a person's psychology and vice versa? So I would argue that every physical illness has a psychological component and every mental health problem has a physical component. Take depression, for example. 
It leads to low energy, increased sensitivity to pain, and decreased immune function. These are real physical symptoms, not things that people are making up. And we know that mental health disorders put people at a higher risk for several medical problems. Research suggests that people with mental health disorders have a higher incidence of, are you ready for this list, David? Go ahead. Let's hear it. Heart disease, high blood pressure, asthma, gastrointestinal problems, cancer, autoimmune diseases, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, and premature death. Wow. I know. We know that chronic stress has a significant impact on our physical health. And I'm willing to bet that most people have experienced a physical symptom related to increased stress. In fact, the American Psychological Association did a study examining the effects of stress on our physical and mental health. And what they found was that 66% of people had experienced physical symptoms of stress, while 63% experienced psychological symptoms. That does not surprise me at all, considering the profession that you and I work in. Yeah. And what we've seen firsthand. Absolutely, and experienced firsthand. Sure. We also know that our mental state can have a strong impact on our physical functioning. This is one of the reasons that when they run clinical trials for new treatments or medications, they usually compare them to a placebo. As I'm sure you all know, a placebo is something that looks like treatment or medication, but actually has no therapeutic properties. Most people think of like a a sugar pill or something like that. We know that the placebo effect is real and that some people will have a reduction in physical health symptoms because they expect a treatment to work or because they believe they are receiving medication even when they're not. There's actually an interesting theory that the brains of people who experience the placebo effect are releasing endorphins which are our body's natural opiates, in response to that belief that a medication or treatment works. These endorphins reduce pain, so that means that these people are really experiencing less pain, even though they did not receive any actual medication. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that placebo is all that's needed or that we can just think our way out of illness or disease, but we do know that our attitude and expectations do have some effect. So why in our society are we so reluctant to consider that our psychology impacts our physical health? I think it gets back to a problem with dichotomous thinking, and I think this is a theme that we're going to talk about across the whole podcast. In our society, it's often the belief that things must be one way or another. There's little tolerance for gray areas or for the understanding that two seemingly opposite concepts can coexist at the same time. I have a sneaking suspicion That many people believe that if there's a psychological component to their physical suffering, that means that the physical component can no longer exist. So why do you think that is, David? You know, I totally agree with you. Um, We've talked a lot about this, about this sort of tolerance for the gray area. All right, so to get to the root of dichotomous thinking, and I know this was a big topic in your studies in radical behaviorism, And it's also been uh, a big topic in my studies in transpersonal and in um, Buddhist philosophy and thought and Eastern philosophy in general. So to get to the root of this problem, we're going to have to go down the rabbit hole a little bit and we're going to take it back a little way. So let's do a quick sort of uh, history survey here. We have to go take a look at an an old dead French philosopher from the 1600s named René Descartes. Um, There was a movie made back in 1990 uh, that was called Mindwalk. It's a great thinking movie, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I found out recently that this movie didn't seem to ever make the leap from VHS to DVD. So finding a copy of this movie might be difficult today, which is really unfortunate because it's a great movie. At any rate, um, 
this movie was based on a book by Frihoff Capra, who is an Austrian physicist. And I may be pronouncing his, I've heard his first name pronounced different ways. Frihoff Capra. Um, I've always said it Frihoff Capra. Capra is synonymous with terms that you may have heard like echo-literacy, systems theory, deep ecology, you know, stuff like that. He, his most famous book is really well known. It's called The Tao of Physics. Mindwalk is based on one of Capra's books entitled The Turning Point. This movie is a conversation essentially between three characters. One is played by John Hurd, um, one is played by Sam Waterston, and one is played by Liv Ullman. Um, and this explores how the philosophy of Descartes was mechanistic in nature and sort of traces that thinking throughout history. Descartes Capra argues was the first real break from the church, which was the which was at the time the final arbiter of what was considered knowledge. Descartes' philosophy rested on some founding principles, one being that the body was like a clock. In other words, humans could be seen like machines. We could be reduced to our basic pieces, taken apart, explained, put back together, so forth. If a problem arose, it was simply a matter of figuring out what piece was broken or malfunctioning, and then replacing or fixing that piece, and then putting you back together again. Seems simple enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Somewhere along the line, however, this mechanical representation became the model for everything, including the cosmos and nature. It became ingrained in our heads that all problems could be solved this way. For a long time, the thinking was revolutionary as it really advanced science and technology. As time went on, however, many started to notice that something was missing. As one of my favorite theorists, Ken Wilber, who you will hear me talk about a lot and talk about his theories a lot, likes to say, we had a map, but we lost sight of the map maker. We lost sight of the idea that there is a human being in existence, a conscious, living, breathing person. This is quite different from the mechanical view of interlocking pieces that Descartes and later Sir Isaac Newton sought to reduce us to. The idea we as humans can be reduced to our body parts is actually quite ridiculous, but that is still the dominant view in Western medicine. As time goes on, thank you, transpersonalists, among many others, we are slowly reintegrating our minds and souls back into this mechanistic view. So now, what once was taking a defective part out and replacing it becomes looking at the whole of the interconnected systems that the human exists in to include his or her interior experience and every relationship he or she has with everyone else nature, art, science, politics, etc. All of these relationships become more important in that the parts themselves are only important in relationship to something else. In Cartesian thinking, or that of Descartes, there exists a duality between subject and object, to which the object has been the topic of importance for far too long. And this is what we normally call scientific thinking. So, okay, before I get too far down the rabbit hole, the long short of it is this. We have to acknowledge and honor both the interior and exterior experience of being in the world. That means that in the case of unexplained illnesses, we have to recognize that there will always be a seamless relationship between the body and the mind. That is one of the most extraordinary aspects of being human. To this day, there is still very limited understanding of how this interface works, but it does. This means that chemicals floating around in our head are not the last word in human experience. No chemical can explain why I fall in love. Sorry, chemicals just don't translate into experiences. 
So however, the body and the mind work together. The mind has an experience, the body has a corresponding one, and vice versa. We cannot look at the system by reducing it to outward observables. We have to look also at the interior experience of what the whole person is going through. It has been explained by those who know that enlightenment is an end to all dualism. Enlightenment in the Buddhist sense or in the Eastern philosophical sense. But this is an end to the dualism or a breakdown between what is commonly known as subject and what is commonly known as object. So this is an abstract idea for sure, but again, another way to help understand the connection that we're talking about here. So I wanted to also talk about, because I think that's a really great philosophical base um, for the model that is often used that in our, our medicine in this country. I also wanted to talk about some of the background with regard to psychology. In the early days of psychology, a colleague of Sigmund Freud named Josef Brewer worked with individuals who had what he called hysteria. And in the late 1800s, this term was used to describe physical symptoms which were being caused by psychological conflict. His most famous case study of hysteria was a woman whom he called Anna O. Anna O was a 21-year-old woman who had developed several nonspecific and evolving physical health symptoms after her father passed away. Dr. Brewer employed what he called a quote-unquote talking cure with her to help uncover the underlying trauma that he believed was causing her physical symptoms. So this was really important because this is what gave birth to the field of psychotherapy. In Brewer's written account of this case, he indicated that through this talking cure, Anna O was able to engage in an emotional catharsis, or in other words, she was able to express the emotions she had been repressing, which resolved all of her physical symptoms. Although this was a very important case and topic in the development of the field of psychology, I think that it may also be a factor for why we have this dichotomous view of our physical and mental health. Even the term that was used to describe this condition has negative connotations in our current society. We tend to think negatively of people who are hysterical and often think they're overreacting or that they're being dramatic. So in current mental health terminology, we don't have hysteria as a diagnosis anymore. We would call what Anna O was experiencing a conversion disorder. This is where a person is experiencing physical health symptoms for which there is no known physical cause. And there are several theories about why this occurs. As I mentioned, Freud and the psychoanalysts believe that repressed unconscious conflict became converted into physical symptoms, hence the name conversion disorder. Social learning theory suggests that an individual with conversion disorder was reinforced for being sick and that they received the message that physical pain was more acceptable than psychological pain. So while these theories focused on the psychological factors leading to conversion disorder, current biological theories suggest that there are actual brain changes that occur that may lead to sensory problems. I think that conversion disorder is what people automatically think of when it's suggested that there are psychological contributors to physical symptoms. But this disorder is actually very rare. It occurs in only about two to five people per hundred thousand in the United States. However, the DSM, you know, our mental health Bible, also states that transient conversion symptoms are common, suggesting that many people will have physical symptoms related to psychological stressors at some point in their lives. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that we all have had very real, very physical 
experiences based on something that was happening to us mentally. Yeah, and I think that people just, they automatically assume that it's this most severe case where there's absolutely no biological cause for the symptoms and that it's all in a person's head. Right. But what we're finding is that that's very, very rare and that it's far more common for there to be this kind of complex combination of the two. I'd be very curious. So, you know, maybe the people who are experiencing illnesses that have a real root in psychological health really actually have a much stronger mind-body connection than the rest of us. And maybe that's why it is manifesting the way it is. Yeah, that's that's an interesting theory. You know, and I do think that there are certain people who are more prone to experiencing those physical symptoms. I think I'm one of those people. When I'm under stress, I feel it it is in my body 100%. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I have an example. This is something that uh, I did a lot of work around and a lot of research on when I was working on my PhD. Uh, this is something that was part of my dissertation. And this is uh, the idea of or the concept of learned helplessness. So one example of how strong the connection between the body and the mind is um, that we can take is the example of a psychological concept known as learned helplessness. Uh, this is one example where the mind-body connection is, in my opinion, on full display or where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Learned helplessness is the idea that when a person gives up psychologically, in other words, when they have decided that nothing they do will affect any future change, they in fact learn to be helpless. They stop trying to do anything that might even affect change. Where this becomes interesting is that there are significant physical correlates that go with this change in the mind. These physical correlates have been documented in numerous scientific studies. So this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky, fuzzy psychology stuff. This is hard science verifying a connection between the internal experience of the mind and the physical reality of the body. One fascinating example that Martin Seligman, Christopher Peterson, and Stephen Mayer all learned helplessness theorists that they noticed is when a test animal, like a rat, figured out that nothing it did would stop the shocks that it was being subjected to, it in essence learned to be helpless or in effect gave up. This experiment was done by allowing rats to stop shocks they were receiving by pressing a button, then removing the effectiveness of the button and continuing with the shocks no matter what the rat did. After a while, the rat even stopped outwardly reacting to the shocks. It stopped jumping up, it stopped protesting in different ways and just sort of stood and took them. Now, this is a horrible experiment, so please, nobody out there, anybody out there, please don't try to replicate this. I would never do this to an animal. But what researchers found was that when animals do this, they give up in essence, psychologically, there are insane physical expressions of it. One example is what happens to the immune system. The mind experiencing this has very profound effects on the immune system so that illnesses that would normally be fought off suddenly become able to take over the body. This became really noticeable with cancer cells. Cancer cells that may be held in check by the body's defenses suddenly grow out of control. And this is correlated to the change in the animal's mind. This is what researchers found when doing animal experiments on learned helplessness. There was no denying the connection between the mind and the body here. Where I see this in action is in the lives of inmates who become prisonized. This is a form of institutionalization localized to prisons. Because prison life is easy, with everything they need given to them, they in essence learn to become helpless. They give up fighting for things, like especially their freedom. 
and doing what needs to be done to effect significant change in their lives, even with the knowledge that their actions would affect change. This is not unlike depression, outwardly, where the mind and the body are again working in unison. But when I have an inmate dealing with situational depression, we talk about this connection and how his body can convince his mind to perk up, so to speak, with some exercise, some sunlight, some fresh air, social interactions, and how his mind can convince his body to perk up by spending some time challenging his internal self-talk with positive affirmations and rational thinking to address his problems. This is not theoretical in nature. This is very real stuff I see in action every day while working with the men inside of a federal prison. Obviously, learned helplessness and depression are not all or nothing deals. They exist, as with most things, on a spectrum. For the most extreme cases of learned helplessness and depression, sunlight and exercise are not going to cut it, not by themselves. And the interventions will need to be more intensive. But the point is the same. We cannot continue to move forward by denying a very real connection between the mind and the body. Yeah, I agree 100%. It does not have to be all one way or another, all physical or all psychological in nature. And as we learn more about the mind-body connection, we're finding out that it's actually almost never that way. The current research is supporting that even if there's no identifiable illness, disease, or physical trauma underlying a health problem, the psychological stress or trauma does appear to be causing real changes in a person's physiology. So David, did you know that we have 500 million neurons in our, wait for it, digestive system? You know, I did know that. It seems like the digestive system has a sort of intuitive or knowledge that we're just beginning to understand. Absolutely. Hence the expression, you know, your gut feeling. Yeah, you feel it in your gut. So many of our neurotransmitters or the chemicals that we believe influence our psychological state are produced not only in our brains, but also in our guts. And like you said, there's even research to suggest that making adjustments to our gut biology can produce changes in our mood. They're also finding that our neurotransmitters have a significant impact on our immune system like you spoke about earlier. Some of the research suggests that people with stress-related disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder or other anxiety disorders are at an increased risk of developing autoimmune diseases. Autoimmune diseases occur when the immune system begins attacking the person's own body. And some researchers think that many of these unexplained chronic illnesses may be autoimmune in nature. I think this just is further evidence that all of our systems are connected, that our psychology doesn't exist just in our minds, but in our bodies as well. So you might be wondering what I did about my stomach pain. Well, once I knew there was nothing dangerous going on in my stomach, that actually helped me to relax, which I think helped the pain. But it also gave me the nudge I needed to look at how I was handling my psychological stress and make some changes there as well. I started really examining and making changes to the way I was thinking about the things going on in my life. I also spent more time just taking care of myself, doing things like exercising, eating healthy, doing hobbies, and making sure I was giving myself enough time to rest and recharge. And I have to say that I rarely get stomach aches anymore. I'm not saying I'm perfect at this because I still get stress-related symptoms. Like I had a killer muscle spasm a few weeks ago. I could barely move. (laughs) But I definitely get fewer of these symptoms than I used to. Hmm. And now when I get them, they serve as a signal to me that I need to stop and take a closer look at what I'm doing for my psychological health. 
So, David, do you have any final thoughts on today's topic? I just wanted to, to say, as part of that experience with the um, the heartburn, yeah, you know, um, I had an opportunity when we were there, uh, and you were actually having that test done, the scope done to, to to take an internal look at what was going on. The doctor brought in the the pictures that were uh-huh. taken with the scope, and I just happened to glance over at the guy next to us, who also had the exact same procedure done. And who was, who had a very real case of... Um, heartburn? Heartburn. GERD or whatever they right. call it. Yeah. GERD, right. Uh, the pictures from yours and the pictures from his were completely different. Completely different. Even though the experience was probably a, a lot, was very similar. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It's fascinating to I me. I mean, because having experience, like I am telling you, the pain at times, it was so severe. Yeah, like, I remember. It was not something that I was making up. Yeah. So I really, I can really resonate with that experience of having something going on that I know that I feel is very real to me and somebody being like, well, I don't know. There's no, there's no reason for it. Right. You know, but again, I, I really acknowledge and I really um, resonate with the idea that my mind and body are very connected. Sure. I read a, a really interesting article. I mean, this was years and years and years ago. It was probably in the mid 90s back when um, I used to read a magazine called Details. Oh, yeah. I remember Details. Details. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't magazine. even know if it still exists or not. I don't know. Yeah. But um, there was a an article. They solicited articles from the general public. And so people were submitting stuff. I was way too young to write anything. I didn't know what I would write about anyway. But one guy wrote a really interesting article about having uh, herpes. And one of the things that he said that is that over time, having herpes, he would have outbreaks at times when he was not being honest with himself about how much pressure he was being under or how much stress he was dealing with. So it was sort of this outwardly expression, these outbreaks that he would get when he wasn't being honest with himself. I thought that was fascinating. And so he actually, over time, learned to accept this as a gift. Like, oh, you know. Yeah, um, that that's um, some feedback that his body is giving him. Absolutely. Well, and you think about like people that have cold sores, right? That's a form of herpes. And they'll often say the same thing, that when they're under a lot of stress, when they're not taking care of themselves. Right emotionally that they'll have these outbreaks so our bodies are constantly sending us signals about our psychological health right we just have to i think listen and kind of pay attention to those right and i think it works the other way around too yes absolutely right absolutely so these two things again i believe are seamless so sort of the final thoughts this brings back the idea that those with an unexplained or chronic illness will need to honor both the physical aspects of their suffering and the mental, emotional, or spiritual aspects as well. I know that if I were experiencing this kind of suffering, I would be attempting all manner of interventions to include psychological help. That's me. Not because it's all in my head, quote unquote, but because I am acknowledging a very real connection between my mind and my body. Again, problems with the body cannot be seen in isolation. That's the old Cartesian idea of things being taken apart. The body has to be seen as part of a larger system of interlocking relationships and that all of these relationships are going to have an effect on the whole of the person. So once again, I'll say it again, I do not believe that these people are making anything up or that they're crazy in any way. I would just hope that they, like the rest of us, 
would really begin to challenge themselves and we ourselves to accept that taking care of our emotional and spiritual health can and does have a very real and direct, not an abstract, but a very direct effect on the body and vice versa. I agree 100%. And now we'd really like you guys to weigh in. So what role do you think the mind-body connection plays in chronic illness? Have you ever experienced physical symptoms related to stress or another psychological problem or vice versa? Why do you think there's a general tendency in our society to illegitimize our mental health? We'll have some links on our webpage related to this episode's topic, so please check those out at psychologyafterdark.com. Also, if you have a dark subject that you think would be interesting for our our podcast, please send us a message. You can do that from our website or from our Facebook page. If you're enjoying our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and let your friends who might be interested in it know about us as well. Also, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for your support and for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode where we'll be talking about a case that everyone is talking about right now. Everyone's talking about it. Yeah, the case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. So we'll see you then. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.